This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Hello, my name is Kay Winnigal, and I'd like to pay my respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard on Radio Skid Row. Today's program is about land management adaptation to climate change. You may have heard about the Australian anthropologist Peter Sutton and field archaeologist Karen Walsh, who recently co-authored a well-researched book called Farmers or Hunter-Gatherers, The Dark Emu Debate. It is a critique of award-winning writer's Bruce Pascoe's book called Dark Emu, Black Seeds, Agriculture or Accident. In their book, Sutton and Walsh argue that, rather than being farmers, Aboriginal Australian people were highly successful hunter-gatherers and fishers, but definitely not living in a primitive state. Terms such as agriculturalists and hunter-gatherers are no longer current, and in their day imposed a hierarchy of cultures and societies in an essentially late 18th century and early 19th century European way. When a debate is strictly confined to categories like farmers or foragers, there is a tendency to place agriculturalists above hunter-gatherers. The point of books like Bruce Pascoe's Dark Emu is to show that Aboriginal Australians were not merely hunter-gatherers. That notwithstanding, best evidence, including the Sutton and Walsh book, showed that Australia's hunter-gatherer fishers left an extremely light carbon footprint and land management was highly adapted to local conditions. This, of course, is quite the opposite of many current agricultural industrial practices. Given our vast continent, weather extremes and ecosystems, and the enormous climate change challenge, we need to adapt and learn from the highly successful Aboriginal Australian land use and resource management techniques. There is no dispute that Aboriginal Australians managed their landscape ingeniously and had highly effective food intensification practices. The problem is that extrapolating various practices to the entire continent goes against the very localised nature of Aboriginal ecological knowledge and practice. So here are two discussions I've had about this. The first is with Bruce Pascoe earlier this year, where he discussed the important elements of his book, Dark Emu. Then a talk I had with Rebecca Cross, a researcher and lecturer at University of Sydney, about her research on land management practices and how to build resilience and sustainable productivity in diverse regions. So, Bruce, you've recently joined the University of Melbourne as a Melbourne Enterprise Professor in Indigenous Agriculture. How did that come about and what is your focus for this? Well, I'd... Um... I'd done some work with Marcia Langton in the past and uh, then I began working with Kate Hale, working on some of the grains and the science surrounding them. So I think the, uh, the appointment came as a result of that. But my focus at the university is, is on research, but also in encouraging uh, undergrads and other, other people to take up the research into these plants because there's so much needs to be done and we need to 
take it very seriously because it impacts so directly on the health of our land. When you talk about the research of plants, I'd imagine there's a huge variety of plants around Australia that you would be able to research. There are hundreds of grains alone. And, you know, I mention a few of them in Dark Emu and people have um, embraced those plants, but there are hundreds more. And the same with the tubers, the same with the uh, lamandra and things like that. There's an enormous variety, and that's one of the things that Aboriginal people did. Their diet was expansive and not exclusive and not narrowed down to just a few fruits and a few vegetables. It was um, quite diverse, which meant that Aboriginal people could accommodate change, uh, climate change, which they had to endure a number of times. And it also meant that particular plants weren't getting hammered and that's why I'm anxious that people don't just concentrate on kangaroo grass and mamaja naluk and things like that. Um, We should be looking at all the grains so that we can spread our consumption across them and not get back into the idea of monocultures. Monocultures are very, very damaging to the environment and Aboriginal people were usually harvesting four or five grains at a time and within that grain field there might be four or five tubers as well a very complex system uh, supported by you know mycorrhizals and it's very much more complicated than a normal farm but all of that complication is to do with soil health You mentioned climate change and that there had been a number of climate change activities in the past. Are they similar to the climate change that we're experiencing at the moment or was it different? Well, Aboriginal people were on the continent during peak periods of really high rainfall, but they were also here during periods where they experienced desertification. The climate change is not is something that Aboriginal people have had to adapt to. But what is what is currently happening is that humans are, for the first time, are, are contributing negatively to the climate change. And that's the element that we can control. Nothing else about it. You know, the oscillation of the earth, not something we're going to be able to control. But our own contribution to it is controllable. And... You know, if we we want to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels and reduce our contribution to climate change, that's the area that we enter. But one of the big ones, I think, is agriculture. Agriculture contributes enormously to climate change. It's having a deleterious effect on soil health and uh, and climate health by you know reliance on uh, hard hoofed animals but also plants that require ploughing and carbon release. So if we looked more carefully at how we got our protein and how we got our vegetable matter and then analysed how Aboriginal people did the same thing on the same continent for 100,000 years, we would learn quite a lot. It's it's such a big topic, isn't it? Where, Where do you start? There's so many areas and you've just mentioned 
the soil and, and agriculture. Of course, when you were talking in your book, Dark Emu, you were talking about domesticating plants, how you people sowed and harvested and irrigated and also stored um, produce. The soil has always been poor in Australia, as I understand it, but the, the plants adapted to the soil. Since then, we've removed all the indigenous plants and, and started producing European-type plantings. What has that done to the soil in itself? Well, Australia is an old continent with relatively low fertility. So when you remove ground cover, you also expose the soil uh, to erosion uh, and carbon release. So the, the soils become even less fertile than they were. But the most serious aspect of it is erosion, wind erosion. People think it's all water erosion, but when you plough, as we saw last summer, you lose enormous amounts of soil. But even the soil that you don't lose loses its nutrition because of the exposure of the mycorrhizals to open air. And, you know, we, we seem to be deliberately doing everything we can to destroy soil rather than build soil. And a, a decent farmer would be a soil builder, uh, not a soil destroyer. And tell us, how could you rebuild the soil? Oh, uh, well, I'm working on a farm uh, near Malakuta, which had a lot of cattle on it, far too many cattle for the size of the property. And the hillsides were relatively bare. I removed the cattle and for two seasons allowed the grass to grow and uh, seed and collapse and grow again. And so I'm building up a cover over the ground and trying to encourage our native plants and suppress the um, exotics. And we've got a long way to go, but our soil health and the range of plants that are now growing there is almost beyond belief in, in comparison to what it had been. It been a really narrow range of plants growing now. It's a really wide one, and the health of all of those plants is so much better. And we're, we're harvesting the seeds and the tubers from a lot of those plants, um, but we do so without removing the plant. So the plant remains there. We harvest some of the tubers or we take the seed from the grass. Um, but in doing so, we don't take all the seed. You know, our harvesting method isn't perfect. And that means it is perfect because in harvesting the seed, we're also scattering the seed. And our system ensures that there's more seed in the ground for the next season. So it's a, a different way of looking at farming rather than a full extraction of all benefit for the human. It allows for benefit for the plant itself. You've been working with the University of Sydney on the effects of chemicals such as superphosphate in the soil. Do you work directly with farmers as well? Well, we, um, we do work with farmers, but we wait for the farmers to come to us. We're not trying to impose this system. Um, and what is happening is that farmers on marginal lands are going broke. And it's either they leave the land or they do something differently. So we encourage them to look at perennial grasses. 
um, as stock feed if that's what they want to do. And we've got really good examples of how people in different regions grew plants differently. And the reduction of using chemicals, I think, is crucial to it for their profitability. So if they go into a more natural system, their income will drop, but their profit will rise. And many farmers are saying to me that whereas in the last 30 years they've virtually had no profit off their land at all, they've been going backwards. Um, By using more natural systems and decreasing their reliance on chemicals, particularly superphosphate, but there's all sorts of chemicals that are being sold to farmers, which if you, you farm differently are unnecessary and that expense is so high on the farm, it's usually the biggest line item that if you reduce it or eliminate it, suddenly your farm is in profit. I think we need our departments of agriculture to work more closely with farmers and uh, less closely with chemical companies. The people in charge of the farm chemical industry um, working very hard to protect their industry, and one such fellow was, um, you know, behind the Dark Emu Exposed website. Um, he runs a chemical a farm chemical supply company, so his way of distracting attention from these um, methods, uh, the environmental methods, uh, was to, you know, attack the messenger, and. Uh, it worked pretty well. But I, I think there's a movement in Australia that with a lot of young people who aren't accepting that kind of rape and pillage argument for the earth. And I think what we have to say to people is this is not about the economy going backwards. It's just a change in the economy. There are economic opportunities here, just as there are in the solar power industry. And we have to convince people that... Um, Australia can prosper uh, by using more environmentally friendly farm methods. There is a market around the world for better food and there's a market within Australia for better food. And I think all the government needs to do is sometimes not spend money but just allow the easing of regulations to benefit farmers who are producing better food and it might be that we penalize farmers for producing food which is uh, so water dependent for instance you know this whole water debate is a, a fraud on australia and we need to have crops that use less water so perhaps the government just through its legislation its regulation etc um, encourages farmers who use less water rather than more. And that'll, that will shift the emphasis away from water-hungry plants like cotton, uh, where, you know, those farmers with government help dammed all the rivers of northern Queensland, New South Wales, so they could grow cotton. And all their fellow farmers, and this is what amazes me, their fellow farmers went without water, and yet... Uh, there was no political movement to shake the hold of those cotton farms on the water, which means that the political strategy of the cotton farmers was 
damn near perfect, pardon the pun, and we need to we need to really penalise people who overuse water. We need to completely dismantle the water selling system. It's just ridiculous. An eight-year-old would tell you that people in China and America owning Australian water is ridiculous. It's antithetical uh, to the world, the earth. We should dismantle that system and get more involved in water economies. We can demonstrate that our, our plants only need the water that falls out of the sky. And especially given that Australia is the driest continent on Earth and becoming drier and drier yep. every year, it just it doesn't make any sense on any level. In case you've missed it, we're speaking with author and historian Bruce Pascoe, author of Duck Emu. You have a farm in East Gippsland and you went through the fires not so long ago just as you were trying to harvest a crop of what was it, kangaroo grass? Kangaroo grass, yeah. Yeah. And even with the loss of that crop, you were able to harvest something else shortly after the fires in the same year. Yeah. That probably is a good example of how quickly things can change. I didn't lose the farmhouse, uh, but we did lose a crop of kangaroo grass. But within weeks, we had a, a new grass returned which was a microlina. And um, I suppose after about eight weeks, we harvested that grass and we were able to convert the grass into flour and bake bread from it. We also made a beer from it. So what, what had happened is the fire had reduced the competition for this particular plant and it came back very strong. So did the kangaroo grass. But the other grasses like sweet vernal, and Kaikuyu were suppressed for a period of time. They're now starting to recover, which is telling us that we probably need to burn again a bit more gently than the bushfire, I hope. But we do need to give our plants that advantage because they love fire. But we do have to find out that regime. It's not indiscriminate fire. We have to look at the regime and look back at the records of how Aboriginal people did it use the you know the fire stick farming but do it re- really sensitively per region you know one size does not fit all on the farm so one size doesn't fit all in terms of the crops i'd imagine as well as the regions how do you go back to find out what the right techniques are well look i have a map of malakuta which talks about the plant regimes in existence when Europeans arrived. And it's a really interesting thing to do. And around Melbourne, there was an orchid that was a dominant species at the arrival of Europeans and it was eliminated by sheep within weeks, virtually disappeared in six months. And um, that was an orchid, highly productive food, highly nutritious food, Uh, because Aboriginal people were eating that bulb, and that was why it was there. That is why it was a dominant species, because Aboriginal people were encouraging that as a food plant. It grew amongst other orchids and other grasses, but the plains were covered with the white flowers of that orchid. I can't remember its name now, but we really do need to regenerate that orchid and do scientific trials on growing it, not as a monoculture, 
in conjunction with its other friends. And we will find that out by looking through the historical record. There must have been people who reported what they saw when they first arrived in Australia. And you combine that with Aboriginal art, because Aboriginal art, one of the few arts in the world which focuses exclusively on plants, and combine that with Aboriginal record and then try and do some trials on replicating that environmental system. And because it's it's perennial, so therefore sequestering carbon, and only uses the soil available and only uses the water available. The problem that we don't understand today is that the soil that Aboriginal people had helped create was far better than the soil we have today. Because, it, you know, most explorers talk about the fact that their cartwheels would sink in the soil uh, because it was so soft and that everywhere the farmer looked, there was moss and that they couldn't walk through their paddocks without getting their socks wet because of there was a dew. After sheep had been there for a little while, as one farmer pointed out in the Colac region, the dews ceased. So there was an environmental impact caused by sheep alone. So we need to look really carefully at what we're doing. We need to look at the past, try and replicate those systems. It sounds uh, beautiful. It sounds highly efficient and highly productive. If we sneer at it just because it's Aboriginal and just because these people are said to be hunters and gatherers, we're missing a really great point of advantage uh, for agricultural efficiency in this country. Um, I think there is a long way to go, but we do have to start. Whinging and complaining and ridiculing is just going to delay us. We have to start. We, we do it in trials. You know, we don't get all of, the, um, all of the farmers to attempt this at once because that's not the way you do a good experiment. You need to keep varieties of systems operating until you decide on one that works. But for goodness sake, let us attempt to investigate the Aboriginal system, which was sustained for 100,000 years with all the rivers intact with their water in them, the soil in better condition than it is now. And as a soil scientist, as an agricultural scientist, as a member of the National Party, this should be gold for us. You would have to investigate that system. In one of your presentations, you mentioned that over 18 metres of topsoil has been lost in Australia over the last 200 years. Can you tell us how that's come about? Yeah. Um, I was at an archaeological dig and the um, scientist showed me how much soil had been blown away. He could measure it scientifically. And uh, it's just uh, outrageous that a farmer could think that he was worthy of a diesel rebate or um, some kind of farm support if he had destroyed the Australian soil by his methods alone. That's disgraceful. No farmer should be allowed to do it. No farmer should want to do it. It's a utilisation of capital that we can't afford. Australian farmers at the moment are spending Australian Aboriginal capital and um, in many cases ignorant 
of the fact that they are doing so. But uh, we as a country, uh, without pointing the finger at farmers, without ridiculing farmers, we can make a, a change. We can suggest a change. And people in the city shouldn't be saying that all farmers are all bad because it is we in the cities with our demand who have contributed to this system. You mentioned the the damage that hoofed animals do in Australia. When you consider that camels, horses, cattle, sheep and deer have been introduced to Australia, how do you manage that? Yeah, well, uh, we can um, decide on a a course of action, Um, but any course of action, we need forestry... um, change as well and I think we need to allow 70 years for any kind of real change to take place the same would be for animals we've got rid of rabbits that wasn't too hard for us they're not completely eliminated but they are controlled you know it's not we send people to planets for a holiday these days if we can do that we can get rid of a horse where we don't want it so those horses are in the wrong place, so they're they are on the wrong continent. We don't get rid of all horses. We just control where they are. You know, we don't get rid of all sheep, perhaps, but we don't allow them to roam willy-nilly. And also, we have to eat less meat. If we, say, ate 10% less beef and, and mutton, it'd make an incredible difference to the continent. And we don't allow billionaires to claim that they are the heart of Australia by uh, free-ranging bullocks across the heart of Australia and uh, then selling them to the Indonesians to be butchered in a a horrible way because those people are dominating an enormous area of the Australian landscape with this one animal in a highly inefficient way subsidised to the absolute hilt and destroying in the process grainlands of Australia. Uh, Aboriginal people had grainlands where, you know, those cattle stations are now, which are totally denuded of vegetation, and they used to be the heart of Australian Aboriginal grainlands. And that's a change we can do without too much fuss. It's not a change in a physical change so much as it is a mental change. You know, get rid of all the acubras, get rid of all the, the mythology around those station owners because one of them is um, Ms Hancock and uh, she claims to be the quintessential Australia and yet her stock are killing some of the most fragile environmental zones on earth. And um, she wants to believe that she's doing the right thing. All we need to do is change the mythology of Australia so that, you know, we're we're not so reliant on Banjo Patterson and uh, people like that. We have a sense of ourselves, of Australians, as being hardy bush folk, but sensitive to the land, not insensitive to the land. Gather round people, I'll tell you a story, an eight year long story of power and pride, 
British Lord Vesty, convincing Lingari for opposite men on opposite sides. Vesty was fat with money and muscle, beef was his business, broad was his door. Vincent was lean and spoke very little. He had no bank balance, hard dirt was his floor. From little things, big things grow. From little things, big things grow. The Ringy were working for nothing but rations. But once they had gathered the wealth of the land, daily the pressure got tighter and tighter. The Ringy decided they must make a stand. They picked up their swags and started off walking. At what a creep! They sat themselves down. Now it don't sound like much, but it sure got tongues talking. Back at the homestead, and then in the town. From little things, big things grow. From little things, big things grow. Investing man said, "I'll double your wages, eighteen quid a week. You'll have in your hand." Vincent said, "Uh-uh, we're not talking about wages. We're sitting right here till we get our land." Vesting man roared, vesting man thundered. You don't stand a chance of a cinder and snow. Vincent said, "If we fall, others are rising from little things. Big things grow from little things. Big things grow." Vincent Lingari boarded an airplane, landed in Sydney, big city of lights. And daily he went round softly, speaking his story to all kinds of men from all walks of life. And Vincent sat down with big politicians. This affair, they told him, it's a matter of state. Let us sort it out. Why your people are hungry. Vincent said, "No thanks. We know how to wait. From little things, big things grow. From little things, big things grow." Then Vincent Lingari returned in an airplane back to his country once more to sit down. And he told his people, "Let the stars keep on turning. We have friends in the south, in the cities and towns." Eight years went by, eight long years of waiting, till one day a tall stranger appeared in the land. And he came with lawyers, and he came with great ceremony, and through Vincent's fingers poured a handful of sand. From 
Little things, big things grow from Little things, big things grow was a story of Vincent Lignari, but this is a story of something much more, how power and privilege can unmove a people who know where they stand, stand in the law, from little things, big things grow, from little things, big things grow. That was Paul Kelly, of course singing from Little Things, Big Things Grow. And now, Rebecca Cross from the University of Sydney discusses local innovation, local knowledge and local socio-cultural dynamics that influence sustainable land management and sustainable use of species. Note the lovely backdrop of bird sounds. Your research has a focus on natural resource management, regenerative and sustainable ag agriculture and farming subcultures. What got you interested in that? Uh, I suppose my um, family, so my grandparents and now parents own and manage a dairy farm um, up on the mid-north coast. So uh, really I got very interested in not only um, how people's attitudes and behaviours, sometimes there's a disconnect there, but how that was happening in the farming space and then in, in specific relation to environmental attitudes and environmental practices um, and looking at yeah, farmers' attitudes of being a steward and wanting to leave the farm in a better um, state than they received it and then what sort of practices or behaviours they were doing on the farm and what those barriers were. So I got really interested in that. Getting onto Australia's agricultural production, which is about $61 billion a year, we export about 65% of what we produce. Agricultural production only accounts for about 2% of Australia's GDP, but uses about 60% of the land. Given that Australia is the smallest, driest and lowest lying inhabited continent in the world, is that a sustainable way to use the land? Uh, no. <laughs> I suppose from an economic angle, no. I mean, GDP is pretty limited in what it's calculating. So, you know, I'd, that's not really taking into account all the other sort of ecosystem services that farmland does provide. And especially if, if we're looking at how much it's producing, we're really looking at high input agriculture and there's only so much land in Australia. Um, where the right soils or right or irrigation is available where you can actually produce that sort of level of economic output if you're looking at it at that end of the scale. But if you're looking at land use and the potential for low input agriculture and the potential for production and conservation to be integrated so that you're producing at the same time time that you're providing essential ecosystem services like biodiversity or soil stability or water quality, then accounting for that perhaps would lift that figure a little higher in the economics world. But uh, we can definitely do better in terms of what we're producing and then the density on our farms. But perhaps that 
that lends itself to a discussion as well about what plants we're producing and what sort of ecosystems we could develop to produce multiple products at the same time um, in a sustainable way that's more about conservation as well. Well, it takes me on to my next question. You've done a lot of work looking into land management practices by Indigenous people, so I'd like to concentrate on that to get a better understanding of how land can be used or could be managed prior to British settlement, especially given that that since colonisation, Australia has seen more biodiversity loss than any other continent, and this rate is still one of the highest globally. How does that affect traditional land management practices? Oh, that affects it greatly. I mean, definitely Bruce Pascoe is more of an expert in this field and his his book really ties together a lot of those issues nicely. But when it comes to Australian agriculture as a high import model, it could perhaps also be seen as a very colonial tool in the landscape. So disconnecting people from being able to walk their song lines and therefore be able to manage the land in that sort of consistent way across the landscape. I mean, traditional burning practices, communities are starting to bring those back in New South Wales. There are definitely groups around the Central West who, because of the brutality of colonisation, knowledge, I don't think was lost from what I've heard from elders, but definitely fragmented. So trying to bring that knowledge back has involved travelling to other landscapes like in the Cape and then bringing that fire knowledge back and adapting it to the landscape that elders are familiar with um, and bringing back those practices. There are regenerative farmers and others who are starting to really key into this and hire fee-for-service Indigenous ranger groups to do cultural burning on their properties for conservation and production purposes. But in terms of Indigenous land management, I suppose it's very complex and it's very different in each part of Australia and how much traditional as well as contemporary practice has been integrated into what different communities do varies greatly. Just looking at savannah burning for carbon emissions up in the north versus Indigenous-run agricultural enterprises that are combining more Western forms of agriculture with Indigenous land management practices and Indigenous cultural knowledge of landscape. There's a lot of different, different sort of amalgamations of knowledge that Indigenous peoples people use. In New South Wales, I mean, we work a lot with local Aboriginal land councils. Um, and looking at the types of land that they have under different arrangements, native title and other arrangements. And there there is a big will for communities to be able to make some sort of income out of those blocks of land. Local Aboriginal land councils, their funding models maybe give them one full-time worker a week and those full-time workers, they are the peak cultural body. So from language to housing to land management to cultural practice that you know that's sort of a one-stop shop in a lot of places so being able to make some income out of the properties they have but at the same time not only heal the land with some regenerative practices but also bring back traditions of walking country with family and having that intergenerational transmission it's kind of there's potential to tick all boxes by looking at native grasses um, in particular um, 
as a basis for that. You mentioned before about local Aboriginal councils. Are you working on getting them producing um, native grasses and crops and yeah. working out what to do in certain areas and then perhaps teaching the rest of us how to manage things more sustainably? Yes, so at the University of Sydney, we had a project that was called um, Paddock to Plate, Native Grasses for Grains, and that was looking at all aspects of the potential for a native grains industry. So looking at what does that look like economically, what does that look like socially and culturally, what does that look like production-wise, what does that look like as a value chain, and at the other end, what sort of products can be made, how you ensure consumer equity at the other end so that everyone can then access those products, as well as the nutritional profiles of different species. So grass species, as well as other species that live in native grasslands like purslane, um, which is known for its high omega. So that project kind of looked at all those different aspects. But a key part of that project was our partnership with the Narrabri Local Aboriginal Land Council and the Wee Ward Narrabri I'm sorry, the We War Local Aboriginal Land Council as well. And uh, as time has gone on, our chief investigator, Dr. Angela Patterson, has connected with a lot more communities that have become interested in this project through word of mouth. And so that is a part of what we're doing. We have the Sydney University farm up there in Narrabri, where we're starting to plant some native grass fields for different types of trials. We're looking at cool burning, rotational grazing, pasture cropping, different ways of harvesting native grasses, different ways of threshing native grasses, etc. Our plan is to have satellite sort of projects on Indigenous-owned land with Indigenous communities and different communities have different aspirations. So I sort of said before, like some for some communities, it's more about just having the native grasses and being able to regenerate that land and, and to be able to have cultural transmission of knowledge for other communities equally important is the ability to make uh, a sustainable living out of that grassland and to trial other things like growing certain fruit trees like so for instance there are certain pockets where there are quandongs and when they get ripe <laughs> the whole community is there to harvest those particular grove of trees so community is very interested in growing more of those sort of trees within their grassland, um, as well as other key medicine plants that are in high demand by the community. So that project is progressing at the moment and more and more partners are coming on board. Mungandai Local Aboriginal Land Council and others further afield in the Imilare Nation are involved in that. But beyond that, in New South Wales, there are many other communities, the Orange Local Aboriginal Land Council, the Bathurst Elder Group, there are a lot of communities looking at wanting to produce native grasses on their properties and also have nurseries and things like that associated um, so that they can sell those products locally as well. You, you were talking about bread making and the fact that it's time to resurrect Australia's ancient bread making traditions and that it a native staple Australian crop would allow us to grow food much more suited to our environment. Can we go through that process of how that would work? Firstly, let's talk about the benefits of producing native crops. 
Yeah, sure. So the benefits are are huge and sort of cross all sustainability categories. I mean, starting just at the in the paddock, the benefits of bringing back native grasses are biodiversity as habitat for their potential to maintain soil structures, maintain moisture infiltration and moisture content, the microbial benefits that they have, the ability to sequester carbon. There's multiple benefits in the field and then as well their productive value I guess on top of that (laughs) and then from that point how they get into being a baked good is something that we're exploring I mean threshing is a little bit of a a sticking point because our current machinery doesn't get the seed out of the gloom um, or the seed casing so easily so that's a current issue that's being I mean trialed and aired And from that point, grinding it down into different types of flour, there's a lot of work on on how you do that and then what sort of products are best, whether it's bread or whether it's cookies or pasta or, you know, what product does that taste best in? And then what ratio of native grains, flour to conventional white flour or wholemeal flour, what sort of mix there is best? And then the health benefits of that, are quite huge because looking at some of our nutritional data that's came out that's come out of this project that's currently being published, native grains are, are quite high in in certain proteins, and we're doing further work to really nut down their benefits and compare those to conventional flour. But bringing back more native foods into our diets is not only good for the environment but good for us, good economically because we're we're not putting as many inputs in or taking as much out of the environment. And in terms of the actual product that is developed, I suppose we should also discuss provenance, which is a key aspect that Indigenous communities are really keen on embedding into this type of industry. So when you have a native grass field, it's not one, it's not a monoculture, it's not one type of grass. So when you harvest that field, it might be different year to year and it might be different from neighbouring communities. So it means you might get a different product at the end of the day in every baked good. (laughs) So being able to market that is one thing. I mean, it's it's going back to those ideas of accepting diversity in our our food and on our palate, not just in our fields and in our pastures. It it, it actually opens up a minefield, doesn't it? Because all of a sudden... Everything that we've, all the systems that we've structured have to be dismantled and and um, reinvented, essentially, don't they? Yeah. Right from I, planting I, to farming to producing to packaging to marketing and yeah. eating. Definitely, definitely. I mean, and, and it has to happen incrementally as well. That pulling down has to happen at the same time as something is building. Um, and the regenerative farming world is out there building that as we speak. I mean, it's very interesting in terms of what this might look like on the ground as well, because talking with communities, there's also a want um, amongst Indigenous communities to connect more with farmers in their local area. And especially in the Narrabri area, which is um, a sort of hardcore cotton growing area, there's a lot of farmers in that area and, and beyond that have what they consider more marginal land that currently they, they don't get any productive value from. So being able to encourage native grasses on those portions of land 
and Indigenous peoples being able to then harvest that native grass in, in some sort of agreement with local farmers, there's a real possibility there for expanding how much land is currently being regenerated for native grassland and being able to boost an, an Indigenous enterprise reliant on native grasses so that they're not just reliant on harvesting from Indigenous owned land, that that harvest can sort of come from across the landscape, a local landscape. But as to the whole transition, yeah, I mean, in our project, we've really looked at, you know, for this to be an Indigenous controlled sector, it really means the value chain needs to be Indigenous owned and controlled, which means from, as you say, like from producing grains to processing to packaging to marketing to then selling and then to buying so that's a huge issue in the native food sort of realm that a lot of the products because native products I suppose in comparison to the heavily plant bred wheats and other uh, cereals and other products um, that have high yield potential there's a premium sort of placed on that that final product that is then sold to top-end restaurants, niche bakeries, niche other native foods outlets, maybe at a price that is, you know, brings up some social justice issues around access to those foods and who has access to those foods and, and ensuring that if Indigenous communities are there at every point along from production to consumption so that not only are communities producing foods but eating foods as well. And you mentioned before that there is evidence that there is a higher nutritional value for the native grains compared to the introduced wheat species that we have at the moment. That would add value as well, I would imagine. Yeah, in, in a future that's focusing on nutrient-dense foods, native grains could play a really pivotal role in that future. I remember probably 10 years ago, Peru, which virtually had the world's market on quinoa, and that was for, for locals. The rest of the world found out it was a superfood, so-called, and then all of a sudden the locals didn't have access to it because it was too expensive. Mm -hmm. It was quite sad, really. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a big consideration as well in, in our work. Um, once we do all this research, produce this science, how do we ensure that Indigenous communities will remain at the forefront um, of this industry and retain ownership of this industry and that it doesn't just get taken over by entrepreneurs who go out and grow more native grain for less cost and then can sell it that way. Um, so I suppose cultural heritage and the cultural IP needs to also be part of the marketing and the value in the products that, that come from Indigenous communities to try and retain that stronghold. Is there an issue um, in terms of native title rights and interest? Uh, because 30% of Australian continent is Indigenous land, but only 0.01% of the water entitlements. So are the water entitlements are concerned? Um, I suppose if it's for native grasses, not so much. Um, they don't really need irrigation. 
perhaps a little supplementary irrigation in sometimes, but for the most part, uh, they're not reliant on having water rights. But that doesn't mean that I don't agree that uh, Indigenous peoples definitely should have water rights and that cultural water rights should be just as considered as production and environmental flows. Um, there should be a provision for cultural flows as well in that mix. But if anything, native grasses uh, help retain moisture in the landscape, you know, help with water quality at the other end. So um, they're really providing a service for Australia and, and water. And that no one puts a value on that, unfortunately. No. <laughs> well, not yet. I mean, payments for ecosystem services, that that is a world that will expand. So there's already, I mean, you'd be well aware of carbon credits. That is a form of an ecosystem service. I mean, there are different schemes worldwide where farmers are paid to do certain practices that maintain water quality, specifically in areas or in voluntary agreements with, you know, bottled water companies who pay a subsidy to, to farmers to change their practices or to maintain a certain low input practice for that benefit. So the potential is there for those sort of markets to expand for sure and, and pay not just for water, but for those that are maintaining water quality and, and water hydration in our landscapes. You mentioned in an article that Australia exports 65% of the food that it produces. Is it possible that native crops could actually supply much more of the local demands and therefore allow more exports? There is that potential. I mean, I think there needs to be a lot more done to develop a native grains food base and then the types of products that we can develop at the other end to kind of quantify that and make that final comparison. I mean, the potential is there theoretically, but actually it, it might take a while to add to those exports. Yeah, that might just take a while. Another paper you contributed to investigated carbon farming in Australia. And I know that large areas of Western Australia and the Northern Territory are actively involved in different types of carbon farming. What are the benefits of carbon farming incentives that the federal government's providing? I suppose it depends on which particular methodology is being used um, and in which landscape. So, for example, venna burning that is done by communities in Northern Territory and, and WA across the top end into Queensland as well, that's really providing huge benefits for keeping people on country, giving people jobs that they're able to maintain in remote parts of Australia, as well as being able to conduct cultural practice reduce emissions obviously by burning fires in the cooler or the, the wetter month rather than letting everything build up and sort of explode in the late dry season. It's providing benefits for habitat because patch burning happens. It's providing benefits for managing invasive species, looking after endangered species. The benefits of savannah burning are huge. But when we talk about maybe a different methodology, so something that we investigated in that paper was more vegetation and avoided deforestation and human-induced regeneration, two of the types of methods that um, we looked at in that paper. And it's interesting, I mean, farmers in the rangelands sort of have the amount of land 
that makes a sort of a quick grab <laughs> for quick emissions reduction. You know, as you come further east, properties get smaller, but it will happen as the current emissions reduction scheme progresses. But farmers in some of those areas who have received some of that income, it's very lucrative in the vegetation sort of realm where you can get paid for 100 years of keeping your vegetation, you can get paid for that in a 10-year period. And a lot of farmers are in the rangelands that I've talked to are actually using that funding to transition their farm into regenerative agriculture. So using it to landscape and put in fencing, but also to sow native grasses. So how that's money, that money is being used as well is having an additional benefit. But then if you're talking soil carbon, which is definitely at the heart of regenerative practice and bringing back grasslands in particular, um, because of how much carbon can be stored and sequestered, that's really what most people are waiting for, because that will add that other economic basis to an enterprise based on native grasses. But obviously there's, I mean, there's a lot of issues with with being able to measure soil carbon because of how much it fluctuates um, naturally. And then on top of that, the cost of measuring soil carbon. So people have probably seen in the news, the government wants to get it down to $3 per hectare. At the moment, I think, I wouldn't be quoted on this, but I think it's around $100 a hectare. And um, the agricultural scientists at Sydney Uni have recently developed a machine that you can glide over the land and it will give you a reading for soil carbon and that's at about $50 per hectare. So again, while there's barriers, there's big potential if we can find out, figure out a way to have more regenerative farmers being paid for soil carbon and Indigenous communities being paid for soil carbon, that that could be really be a game changer towards a native grains dominance. I'd like to thank Bruce Pascoe, author of Dark Emu, and Rebecca Cross, researcher at the University of Sydney, for their wonderful insights today. If you'd like more information about the discovery of Aboriginal ways of life before Europeans, The Conversation has just released its Friday essay called How Our New Archaeological Research Investigates Dark Emu's Idea of Aboriginal Agriculture and Villages. It describes an ongoing archaeological project being conducted by Michael Westerway, Australian Research Council Future Fellow at the University of Queensland, and Joshua Gorringe, General Manager, Mythica Aboriginal Corporation. It's a very interesting article. Along with the research being done in universities around Australia and the work with farmers and other groups, a First Nations teacher and mentor is combining Indigenous conservation methods with Western agriculture in one of the first courses of its type through TAFE, it's a wide-ranging certificate too in conservation and land management, Geraldton's Central Regional TAFE and Batavia Coast Maritime Institute. I wonder if this is a sign of things to come. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change.